We're looking at the introduction to 1 Timothy, and we're focusing this week and last week and in the weeks to come on some doctrine that is essential, that is taught, uh, which is sort of oxymoronic um, and redundant, and um, which I believe is misconstrued in our day, in our culture. I think a lot of times we use words like grace and peace and mercy and love and friendship and hunger and all these different things. We use them in a, in a strange way. And sometimes we even, though we may have the definition correct because we can all look it up now, uh, we may not know the true context of which a particular term or understand the context in which a particular teaching is supposed to be held. And so when Paul writes his letters, as we've seen here, let's read the first two verses of 1 Timothy again, and then we're just going to continue where we left off with a little bit of refreshing from last week. It says, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, by command of God our Savior in Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. And so there's a lot of things there. there. There are a lot of things there. There is Christ. What does that mean? What's the term mean? It's the English transliteration of the Greek word Christos, which is a translation of the word Meshach, which is in English Messiah, which means the holy anointed one of God, the anointed one of God, the one God has chosen and anointed to, do, to be his one. And we see all the prophets of old. We see God in Genesis in the creation of the world, pointing to the Messiah, pointing to the one who would come, pointing to the one who would save his people from their sin, pointing to the one who would be their righteousness. In the Scripture, that's the message. That's the meta narrative of the Bible. That's the overall story of Scripture. Even though it is 66 different writings over hundreds and hundreds of different years by multiple authors and multiple recipients. It is God's Word compiled by Him and His divine power for our instruction that we may know who He is and know what He has done for His people. That is eternal life. And that is why we gather, because God has commanded it. God has commanded that the church be organized in such a way that it, get, that it is overseen and that it is nourished and that it is fed and that it is defended and that we live together in such a way that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the name of the Lord is glorified or is edified or is exalted. The whole point of us living in this life as believers is to praise God, to thank Him, to honor Him, to worship Him for His grace, which is glorious, Ephesians chapter 1, several times, which means He reveals the essence of all that He is and ever could be and ever will be and ever has been. So that this is the epitome, salvation is the epitome of God's self-revelation to His people. And that's why we think the gospel is important. It's not just about getting saved, whatever that means in today's vernacular. It's not just about coming to the truth, whatever that means to some of us. It means God has revealed Himself to His people and His revelation is the salvation of His people by His sovereignty, by His power, by His purposes, and for His name's sake. And we'll see that some this morning. We saw last week that Paul 
inserted mercy in between these three things. Grace and peace is very common in Paul's writing, but we saw last week that Paul inserted mercy. Because mercy, by definition, it instigates the idea of extreme intimacy. That something that there's a deep concern. If you're merciful to someone, it's because you have great compassion. It's because you have great love. It's because you have great intimacy with the idea that you want to help them escape what's coming or that you want to give a stay of something. And so when we think of God's salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, we think of the Father putting forth His Son to be the satisfaction of His wrath and His death. We need to understand, beloved, that that is mercy that the instrument of God working in His grace, as His grace is manifested, mercy is a great picture of what grace is. Peace is a good fruit of what grace produces. Because we are no longer at odds. We are no longer aliens. We are no longer enemies. We are no longer sinful in the eyes of God, but we have been brought near through the blood of Christ. We have brought, been brought not into the Holy of Holies that we may lay down a sacrifice, but the sacrifice has been laid down for us in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And then the walls of the temple and the curtains of the Holy of Holies have been moot, made moot. They've been eradicated. There is no need for them for the high priest, Jesus Christ, who was also the sacrifice, finished the work of atonement, finished the work of redemption forever and ever and ever. And there is nothing else left but the work of Christ for our salvation. There is nothing the sinner must have or accomplish or do or obtain. There is no mindset to which we must approach God to receive anything that's being offered because the good report is not an offer that one must see, but it is a finished work that God the Holy Spirit will show that they have been surely planted in the center of. And these may be subtleties to a lot of us. These distinctions, though always and only biblical, may seem... Uh, not important. But beloved, I'm going to tell you, lies often come with the skin of truth. Deception always comes with some truth. Satan did not lie in the garden. He deceived. Satan did not lie to Jesus in the wilderness. He deceived him. How did he do that? He used truth in a manner in which it was not intended to be understood in hopes that he could cause doubt. Doubt in what? Doubt in the promises of God, and the power of God, and the providence of God, and the purposes of God for the people of God. There's a sermon. <laughs> All peas. That's what the devil does. The devil doesn't come with obvious and easily identifiable alternatives. That's easy. He comes as an angel of light. And beloved, the enemy will use our sinful flesh as the beloved of Christ. He will use our sinful mind when we focus on us and our ways and our thoughts and our ideas and our understanding. We are already missed the point of God's sovereignty. When we are right, stomp our feet and plant, we are wrong automatically. Because that is not the mind of Christ. So to understand this grace, to understand this mercy, to understand this peace, 
Timothy didn't have to be taught this. Timothy spent years and years and years with Paul. And so before we're done with this introduction in a couple of weeks, I'm going to talk about what it means from Paul's perspective for Timothy to be a true child and more importantly, possessively, my true child in the faith. I'm going to talk about that because I think that that would be a good way of looking at the process in which God brings revelation and brings understanding to His people. He doesn't start with a lie and then mull us down to the truth. He starts with the truth and ends with the truth and there's a whole lot of lies in between. There's a whole lot of misunderstanding in between. There's a whole lot of confusion in between. That's why it's so hard for some of you, and I know most of your testimonies to some degree, some of you have struggled deeply with the idea, is my faith substantial enough? For salvation. Now think about that for a second. How is it that your faith could be the measurable power for God's salvation? It can't. Your faithfulness is not a measure of your redemption. Your obedience is not the center of your assurance. Many cults and atheistic individuals have greater moral standards or as good a moral standards as the Bible would call for and can live accordingly and Christians should live accordingly. Otherwise, we do what? We practice loving correction, which is also known as church discipline, which 99% of goes on without incident. We just we correct each other in gentleness because we are also sinners and until I am perfect, absolutely as Christ is perfect, I have no right or authority or permission to approach you in your sin. But I can encourage you in the faith. And we can encourage one another. The Word of God will confront us, you see. We aren't the spirit. We aren't the warriors of God to bring about change in life maturity. We are the slaves of Christ to have His mind to lay our lives down for one another as Christ set His life aside as a sacrifice for us. So this grace, we saw last week, we went and read a lot of Scripture. Uh, We read the second chapter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, We read the, uh, not the whole 8th chapter, but a lot of the 8th chapter of Romans. Um, And we've looked at grace. And so for our sermons about grace in the context of them being, of, of that term being possessive to God, the New Testament solely and only talks about grace in the context of salvation. So I said last week that grace needs to be understood from the New Testament point of view when it is God who has the grace, it is always salvation to His people. There was no other use of the term whatsoever. No other use of the term. But yet, we have seen um, historically a lot of things where people would use the term in other ways, because what does it mean literally? It means unmerited favor. It means a gift. It means thankfulness. It means to be gracious. It means to bestow favor. It also means to act freely. In other words, there's no payment there. There's an action freely. So God works in this way, but grace needs to be understood by the New Testament church as our salvation. By grace, you have been saved. But we also talked about last week that grace in and of itself is not this thing. It's not a tangible thing. It's not a power. It's not a, 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 you know, a, a substance. It's not an object. It's not something like 
uh, you know, this thing that we tap into. It's not something God has pockets full of. Like I think I used the illustration. You got some candy over here. I got some grace over here. You know, we don't throw it out at parades. It's not this obscure movement of God. It is God, His disposition and His favor toward His people and how God acts and what God does. And so God reveals His grace. How? Through the death of Jesus. And the scripture reveals the death of Jesus as what? As the instrumental power of salvation. As the cause of salvation. As the centerpiece of redemption. The cross of Christ. This is the point. The gospel is that Christ has died. The gospel is that Christ is God. The gospel is all that God has accomplished through Jesus Christ to be learned from the prophets and to be understood through the apostles. You see, we can still learn the gospel through the prophets. Through the illumination of the Spirit of God, we can see the apostles showing us what the prophets meant and to what they pointed even sometimes when they themselves did not understand. You get it? The grace of God. And we close out our time last week talking about the grace of God in a way that we could see it working and that we could see the apostles and we could see the authority of the Scripture in the apostles. We talked about all these things. And so therefore we do not, we do not interpret Scripture in light of Tippins, nor do we interpret Scripture in light of history, nor do we interpret Scripture in light of theological things. We interpret Scripture first and foremost by its immediate context because that's how we read a book. And when we read letters, that's how we read letters. Now, I know that in music school, when, when I was in music school years ago, and uh, there was this one of my friends, one of my peers, and he decided he would be really creative, and he wrote a bunch of music, about 12 pages worth of piano music, and then he throws it on the floor, and he picks it up out of order, and he plays it thinking that it would work. And it was a terrible failure. So he, he got a zero on that assignment because it sounded like cats in a blender being poured out over a piano. It just didn't work. Transitions weren't there. And beloved, that's where most of us are in our theological understanding of things. We don't have a grasp on Scripture itself. We have a grasp on the theology of Scripture because of someone else's teaching to us. And so I say all of that because I want you to know that you need to be a student of the Bible. How are you to be a student of the Bible? Put up your study Bibles and study your Bible. Put down your pencils and read it. Sit time aside every day to hear the Word of God. If you are at work, and you have a, do you listen to a podcast? Do you listen to music? Do you Put the Scripture. You can put 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Put the Scripture in your ears because it alone... It alone will teach you the truth of Christ. The Spirit of God will show, I promise you, I promise you, if you read the Bible over and over and over again, the Spirit of God will teach you things that you will never glean. You will never glean. And they're not epiphanies. They're instruction. The Bible is instruction. Test me by that. Don't test me by what you think you know. Test me by what the Word of God says. Because I am a very, very sinful person. But yet I am clothed in a righteousness that's not mine. 
because God has given His Son for me and for you, beloved. And we are right before the Lord. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, I think this is where we picked up, uh, left off last week. We'll have to just see. Paul writes these things to the church. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. So there's some things there that I want to point to in the context of understanding grace. It has been granted to you. Like Paul would pray, granting repentance, granting the gift of faith, giving understanding, giving the heart and the mind of Christ. See, these aren't things that we accomplish. These aren't things that we strive for. And though people have written a lot of books about how we can get together and and follow a particular plan of action and learn the mind of Christ or live as Christ lived, or wear a bracelet that would always pose the question for us, what would Jesus do? Uh, These are not spiritual maturity. These things do not lead us into worship. They lead us into the law. They lead us into legalism. They lead us into things of always being fearful that we're not doing things correctly, nor are we approaching God in a right manner because we're we're not in the right type. We're not clothed correctly. And that was Adam and Eve's problem. They clothed themselves out of their own providence because they would not believe the gospel that said, I am the life giver, you are with me in intimacy, and if you were to remain in this innocence, don't eat of these two trees. Because when you do not believe my promise, you will surely die. See, that's what it was all about. And death entered the world. And man was falling, fallen, and all his progeny are guilty before God. But God created the world, and He created the garden, and He created the first couple, and He created the first family, so that He could show the reason for it all, to display Himself, and to show His glory to His people, to which the world at large will not want to see. So what has the religious of the world at large done? They have created an alternate Christ. They have created an alternate gospel. They've created an alternate Eden. And we've seen it throughout history. We see it with the fig leaves. We see it with, with, with Cain. We see it with the, you know, the generations up to Noah. We see it at Babel. We see Abraham lying about who Sarah was. We see Hagar And the apostles used all these things, not as, look at how bad man is, and look how faithful man is, but look at how sovereign God is, that when He does let His creation set in their place, they will do what they are able to do, which is fail. Free will is failure. One billion percent. There is no decision that we can make that does not fail in the economy of righteousness. And that is why we must live with a currency that comes through the economy of grace, which is an empty hand. We cannot pay God for anything. Grace, mercy, and peace. So the grace of God needs to be understood as Paul wrote to Timothy as God doing for undeserving sinners that He loves in an everlasting way 
through the Savior, our God, and the Christ, who is Jesus, our hope. Grace to you. Grace to you. And I had a list in my head, and last week I think I just spilled them all out, you know, one after the other because it was at the bell. So today, let's pick up with some of these things in a little more organized manner. What is God's grace? How are we to understand? I think we need to look at it in the context of how the Word reveals it. And the first thing we need to see in relation to what God's grace and how it should be understood is God's love for His people. God's love for His people. God loves His people. There's a phrase and a term that, you know, when we see the hands of God and the eyes of God and the heart of God and the mind of God and all these different things, uh, there's a phrase or there's a term called anthropomorphism. That means we ascribe, uh, you know, physical attributes or traits to that which is not physical or intangible. And the word like pathetic means that we sort of ascribe the, a fallacy, the pathetic fallacy is when we ascribe emotions to inanimate objects. Like the speaker cried <laughs> or, or something. That, you know, not necessarily. But I think sometimes we mix all this stuff up and we do the same thing with God. We think that God's love is like our love. And, it could, and the gamut of our love can be uh, pizza or our children. Use the same term, same phrase. Nice weather. Heaven. Oh, I just love the idea of heaven. I just love the summer. Really? I love the Lord Jesus. I love apple pie. I mean, folks, we, we have lost our minds, really. But that's how we are. But we don't put that upon God. We don't say that God is like us. The Imago Dei is not as we've learned those 18 sermons that we talked about in the beginning of this, before we got into Timothy, going through Genesis 1 through 5, beloved, learn that. The one who is in the image of God is Jesus the Christ, the God-man. The righteousness of God. And philosophers have done a very good job of deepening our ideas and our ideology and broadening our thinking in the context, but the, the idea of revelation is not about how we think about it to discover it. It's about how it's simply stated. Revelation is simply stated. How do I get to the such and such store? Well, if you look hard and go that way, it'll be obvious to you. I mean, is that direction when you're lost? You're downtown Los Angeles and you're... <laughs> you don't need that. You need three blocks, take a left, one block up, take a right, and run for your life. You'll find it. <laughs> we don't learn Scripture through ambiguity and cross-references and numerology and deep thinking and incense. And we learn Scripture by the Holy Spirit and it's simply taught to us in the sense that we need each other and each one of us needs the Word. God does use other people to teach us by what they say and what they write. But the Word of God is the template through which we measure their accuracy. So see, if we put the cart before the horse, and there are some deeper things to consider, to contemplate, 
But these things are not beneficial for all believers. All believers don't need them. All believers don't care, and it's not laziness. It's not immaturity. It's maturity to go, I'm not really interested in all that stuff. It's okay. But what you must be interested in is the teaching of the apostles. The the plain and simple instruction given to the church and the reminder and the correction and the commands given to the beloved of God because that is part of our worship to Him. But the love of God is ours. The peace and the kindness of God, the kindness of God is related to His love in such a way that the kindness of God is revealed through Scripture, verbally, through the narrative, through the prophets, through the apostles' instruction, the kindness of God is shown to be His grace and mercy and love toward His people. And we see this and we understand it in such a way that we realize that we've received something that we don't deserve. Saving faith rests in the sufficiency of what God has accomplished. You see... Not in how we've approached it. Not in what we've understood about it. It's not an academic issue, folks. And don't hear what I'm not saying. We do use our minds and we do learn. But regeneration is not academic. It's not a list and subset of things that we go, I confirm. Like a robot. Sometimes, especially for young children, it is a resting hope that they are sometimes unable to express rightly. But that wasn't good enough for history. So what did we do? We created catechisms. And when children could answer the catechism, they were saved. That's hogwash. It's the only safe word I can say about that. And then most evangelicals, cat of what? <laughs> you know? Is that a disease? Put on a mask. I mean, you know... I don't want to catch a catechism. We don't even know what that just means. Questions, answers. Some, some evangelicals, they've never heard of that because it's, you know, evangelicalism by and large is contemporary, very new. They're the new kids on the block. She's got a Bible, and that's all we need, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay, good. You're not reading it, evidenced by the fact of what you're saying. But yet, we still have catechisms being created. And other individual people are saying, well, here's my catechism. Here's my litmus test. Do you at any time, or have you at any time, enjoyed your sin? Presently, past, or possibly in the future? Yes or no? I mean, you ever had that question? Oh. And you know you're going to lie, you're going to sin. You're going to say... No, I hate it. That's a lie. If we hated sin so much, we would fight it. Well, you know, I hadn't murdered anybody in about 20 years. Murder ain't the only sin out there. Pride, fear, doubt, uncertainty, irritation, aggravation, yelling, screaming, silent treatment. I mean, you know, (laughs) the opposite of all these things, whatever it might be, feeling frustrated, in your mind, punching people. We're sinful. And God is not in the business of doing transformative work to make us worthy of Him. He's in the business of doing redemptive work to clothe us in Himself.
So we learn from the Scripture. We learn because of God's kindness. We learn because of God's grace. We are given mercy. You see, the story that Jesus tells about the publican, the, the tax collector. What were tax collectors? They were just thugs. They were first century gangsters. That's all they were. So you want to think of the hardest of hard people in today's terms, whether it be a drug dealer or a gang or, you know, uh, I had a few other things, but we have children present. You know, there, there's a lot of bad things going on in the world. I mean, the publicans were just first century thugs. They were thugs. And they were political thugs. They were spiritual thugs. And they made their living by shaking down their kinsmen, by knocking on the door saying, the Lord is here to take his tax. You know, because that was Caesar's title, the Lord. And anything that they took over what was required was theirs to keep. I had a lot of humorous things to say just then. But they were thugs. And we see that Jesus says the spiritual ones, the Pharisees, the ones who were looked at as the most righteous because of the way they lived and prayed and served and their verbal piety, they prayed in a way that everyone knew that they were serious about God. And they never did anything wrong and they, were, they always answered the law. Paul said that, right? I'm not making this stuff up. Paul said according to the law he was blameless and no one... No one in the temple work could bring a charge against him. He followed it accurately. That's not a lie. He did it right. There's only one way to put the toilet paper on. It's over the top. Out the front. Everything else is wrong. Just throw it in the floor. Paul did it right. People looked at the Pharisees. Jesus even says, unless your righteousness, unless your perfection, unless your holiness, unless your sanctification, unless your divine essence is greater than the Pharisees, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And everybody there that heard him say that were horrified. Why? Because... Because in their eyes, these people were the epitome of spiritual maturity, the epitome of true righteousness, the examples of God-centeredness and, 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 and holiness and, and goodness and perfection. And beloved, even if a well-devoted, like the rich young ruler who was high up in the ranks of religion in his day, he still could not do what the Pharisees could do because he could not rule. He could not enter into the places of worship like those people could do. He could not be a priest. He could not ultimately fulfill all things according to the law because he did not have the legal right to do them. He could not give away, I mean, give up everything he had in business to serve the temple for it was not his call. He had not been appointed to such a task. So there's no way he could be as good as the Pharisees, but yet he was close. And what do the disciples say when he leaves Jesus? When Jesus says, you must be as God is, perfect. He says, yeah, I've been practicing that since my youth. I've been keeping those things since my youth. I've been doing the work of the divine. He's basically saying, I've been like God since I can remember. If you eat of these things, God knows that you will be like Him. 
That's why He doesn't want you to touch it. That's always man's plight. It's the opposite of grace. It's gain. I want to gain in my humble boast, my purity before the Lord. Oh, Lord, thank You. But what does the Pharisee do in the story of Jesus? The Pharisee stands out and prays and preaches. And if he were to die alive today, he'd bidcast it and put it out on social media for everybody to see. And he'd debate the dude on the corner who doesn't know his hand from a hole in the ground and he would boast in it. Pray for this stupid, idiot, lost man. It's not what they say, but that's what it means. Look at me, Lord. I don't steal and lie. What did Jesus say? You don't love anybody. That's your problem. Not stealing won't get you to heaven. (laughs) But the publican, the thug, the thief, the guy that takes advantage of his own people, shakes down his own mama. She's got three coins, he's taking two of them. She doesn't know but a half, he's going to take two. You know Caesar, mama, he's, he's up the ante. Sorry about that. i got three houses to keep. I mean, Caesar's got a, you know, it's a raise. Let's put it like that. Well, you know, your cousin so-and-so just hit the camel lottery. Oh, really? Thanks for telling me. Let's go see, Su- Let's see cousin Susie. We're going to get it from her. And what is the cry of the public? And what is the cry of the tax? What is the cry of the criminal? And who were the people that Jesus hung around? prostitutes, the thieves, the criminals, the thugs, the tax collectors, the haters of God, the insolent, the drunkards, the liars. He didn't hang with the Pharisees. He rebuked them. He called them out in their self-righteousness. And what is the prayer and the cry and the scream and the heart's beat, the heartbeat of that publican in this story? He says, oh, dear God, right? Have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, why would he scream that? Why would he cry that? Well, that was a hypothetical. It did not happen. It was a story. It was a parable. But he says something interesting in the text. When you study that text, and you study the language in that text, you actually hear him say, propitiate for me. Satisfy your wrath for me. So the mercy of God is God satisfying His own righteous justice. How does that work? God's grace at work for His people. Satisfy your wrath for me. Because that sinner had been taught. Had been taught. There's nothing he could do to reconcile himself before the Lord. But yet the Pharisee had all the right answers, had all the right actions, and had all the right attitudes. But he went home condemned. Now, beloved, when the Lord Jesus Christ even tells a story about condemnation, that will make us sick. Because it is a horrible thing to fall in the hands of the righteous God. And none of us deserve to be in His hand. None of us deserve to know His mercy and peace and grace. None of us should understand the blessings of Christ. 
But that is why God made the world and everything in it, that He may reveal Himself as a Father of grace toward His people through His Son. So there is no boasting. There is no condemnation. There is nothing. By grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing but is the grace of God. It is the gift of God effectual unto your eternal life, unto your eternal salvation. It's like Paul saying, God, as he would say many times in his writing, showed me the chief and worst of sinners. You know, Paul took that moniker as he aged. Not as when he began, as he aged. I have received grace. And above all men to be receiving grace, I'm the least deserving. Why? Because in his zeal for what God's Word said, he persecuted those for whom Christ died. Undeserving sinners escape the wrath of God and are delivered from judgment because they have been given eternal life through Jesus Christ. How do we know we have life? Because Jesus lives. If Jesus were not the Christ, when He died, He would stay dead. Because the wages of sin is death. Christ took a payment that He did not earn, so it had no power over Him. And so if He took the payment and He paid it, if He took the penalty and He paid the payment in His own life, in His own flesh and blood, then how can we also then pay that payment? We can't. We can't pay that payment. There's nothing to be paid. It is all of grace. We have been given eternal life. We have been given faith. We have been adopted as children. Beloved, that is... That is our assurance. That is our confidence. We talked about election last week a little bit, about the four ways in which the Scripture teaches election. But beloved, election is grace. How is it that we are able to know God's business? Because God has told us His business. He's taught us. We have been predestined, we have been elected, we have been called, we have been adopted, we have been purchased, we have been snatched, we have been grabbed, we have been drawn, we have been rescued, we have been made alive. Look at these words. Who are the ones, who is the one doing this stuff? Us? No. In all ways, God is the one doing this stuff. He is the actor in them all. These are works of grace taught to the church through the New Testament writing to be understood as salvation alone. Salvation. Because until we get this straight, we're really going to mess up a lot of other stuff. We have been predestined to believe the gospel. God reveals Himself and His purposes. We've been predestined. The pinnacle of grace. God, in His disposition toward His people, toward evil people, that He has called His own. Chapter 1 of Ephesians, I mean, we read this last week, let's read it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul just said to Timothy. 
God our Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord, our hope. Jesus, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the beginnings of the world. That we should be holy, set apart, that we should be blameless, forgiven before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption. An act of grace. Adoption to what? To Himself. Are we adopted as servants? Are we adopted as neighbors? We're adopted as sons and daughters. That When you see sons, and, 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 and it's a plural understanding of siblings. Through Christ Jesus, we're children. Look at this old adage, everybody's a child of God. No, you're not. No, they're not. You know, that's just, that's culture that says that. Everybody's a child. Everybody's a creation of God. But the children of God have an everlasting love, an everlasting hope, an everlasting predestined electing grace that loves them because God loves them. Because what's the alternative? We must do what's the good news God has done. And why does the flesh hate that so much? Because we, whether we want to or not, even in our, even our ability to try to make it humble, it's prideful. We hate the fact that what we've done or what we've become has no merit. <laughs> We hate that. We hate that. Well, what does Paul say about those things? I count it all as loss. He didn't say God chose me to be the apostle to the Gentiles because of all of my Jewishness and all of my uh, superior knowledge and all of my understanding and all of my learning because who better to teach the, G- the Gentiles who were dumb as a bag of tater chips about the atonement of the Lord Jesus that they've never even heard of uh, than me, the greatest of all Jews. He said, I don't know anything but Christ. And all that other stuff I count as garbage. To be left aside, I I don't know anything. Now did Paul forget it all? No. Paul was, Paul was, he's a sly fella. He was a very, very, he might not have been able to do public speaking. He might have come to Corinth and trembling and stuttering and not been able to give a, a, a good argument. But he didn't need to, see. The grace of God eradicates argument. The grace of God disposes of apologetics. The grace of God destroys the wisdom of men. It is all of God. I mean, what did Joshua and, 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 and Moses and all those people, what did the people leaving Egypt think when they hit the sea and they looked back at the dust of the chariots on their butt? What did they think? i tell you what they thought, because not only does it show us in the Exodus, the prophets talk about it throughout the history of the Old Testament, and Paul deals with it very clearly in Hebrews. They doubted God. Now what are we going to do? Look! I mean, what is Moses? 
He's got no flak jacket. He's got no ammo. He's got no tanks. He's got no artillery. He's got no razor wire. He's got nothing. He can't stop a goat, much less a chariot. There's the ocean and death. And it's coming in. And a million people go, Oh, we're going to die, you know. This is over. You should have let us stay. At least we were going to live, see our babies die. I mean, that's what they're whining, they're moaning. That's why God killed all the first generations, 40 years in the wilderness, because they didn't believe the report of His power. And He showed them that day, didn't He? Here's Moses, the commander of all God's people, an old murdering man who's a melancholy, suffering with depression, wondering, second-guessing everything he does. And God gave him a stick. I am with you wherever you go. Here's your stick. He couldn't speak either. He had to have Aaron speak for him to the Pharaoh. But what did God do? He parted the seas. What did God do? Led them by a pillar of smoke. Led them by a pillar of fire. What did God do? Fed them every morning with manna. And yet they're still looking for that manna. They're still looking for that temporary provision that they moaned and groaned. That's what our flesh does. It looks for that temporary provision. You know, i got to find a way. That's how canning started. Putting food up in freezers. Let's try to can this manna. And it never worked. That's why they wanted to know in John 6 when Jesus fed the multitudes, the 5,000 men plus, and... They came back the next day and Jesus says, you know, what are you doing? Why are you looking for me? You're not looking for me because of me. You're looking for me because you're hungry. You want more food for your stomach. You want your flesh to be fulfilled. We want our flesh to be fulfilled. We want to sit down knowing like I do every single night of my life, every night of my life, knowing that my house is secure and things are where they need to be. And although there might be some scatter from here to there, I know where that stuff is. I know things are taken care of. I'm content. Doors locked, alarm set, lion at the front door, cobra at the, at the back. Here we go. Let's go to sleep. That's what we want. We want to secure our salvation in some means through which we can, even if we say thank you God, in some means where we can feel confident that we have buttoned all the latches and pulled down all the sashes and all these things and that everything is at peace in our heart with what we have done according to what, what God has gifted us with. And I'm not talking about stewardship of life. I'm talking about salvation. Well, beloved, what does that get us? Nothing. They asked Jesus, what miracle do you bring? What sign do you bring, rather? Where is the manna? Because the mission of the, the, the mythology of Israel, that's where we, a lot of times we know what these people really thought. A lot of people don't realize, but even in the Old Testament days... People thought because brothers were commanded to take the, the widows of their older brothers. People thought that the firstborn son of that union would be the reincarnation of the brother. It's written in the histories. I mean, the Jews had a lot of weird stuff in antiquity. And one of those myths was that somehow, by divine process, somebody had learned to preserve manna and put it in the Ark of the Covenant with the bud of... Aaron that would be with the staff of Aaron that would have a bud on it. And it was just like an eternal flower and eternal bread. They wanted Jesus to show that bread. 
And instead of him saying, well, here's this bread, he says, here's the bread. I'm the bread. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. That pointed to me. What does it mean? In the midst of wilderness, when you didn't believe in me, when you moaned and complained and, and blamed me, this is God speaking to His people, uh, and, and saw that I brought you out by power, and then promised you what I promised you because it was not there for you to tangibly measure by your own sufficiency, you groaned against me, so I'm going to destroy you because that is the wages of sin, and what is sin? Not believing in the grace of God. See? And that is the sin of the generations in the Exodus. I gave you bread. You would not starve. I gave you water from rocks. That's what cost Moses his life, right? I showed you my power, but you were stiff-necked. You still wanted your own bread. Now, here is the Christ. Here is the God-man eternal, the creator of the world. And here He's standing before you. He's proven who He is, that He is the creator. He is the God of heaven in the flesh. And you want Him to show you a magic trick? You want Him to show you some temporary pasty bread that He made thousands of years ago that your forefathers ate and still died? You can do all that you want to do and you can take the providence of God in any way you want and He feeds the wicked, but beloved, it is not salvation. Only Jesus is the true bread of life. Only Jesus. And what does the manna in the wilderness show you? Only God can keep you alive. Only God can keep you in His presence in Eden. Only God can save you. As we continue to think about these things, we, we need to understand that I think I, I think I might have went to... No, I didn't go there, did I? To Acts chapter 11, or Romans chapter 11. We might have just talked about it. People would come by and say, Oh, you know, in a temporal sense, this is what the flesh does in a temporal sense. Oh, Israelites, those are chosen people. Those are pictures. Because even there, there was a remnant, right? God is not a respecter of persons. He did not create an, he did not create an ethnos that would be special. He created a people out of every nation, tongue, and tribe. Abraham was not. He was Chaldean. He lived in Ur. He worshipped the moon. And for those of you who have served over there, you've seen the ziggurats. These big staircased pyramids. So they can get as close as they can to that which is divine. So they can burn an offering to it and pray to it. Our flesh is always about creating our own way to whatever God we create. And beloved, the evangelical world, the Christian world, Christendom, church history is full of false Christs and false gospels and false everything. And I think there is, are as many in the reform camps and the sovereign grace camps as there are in any other camps of any cults known. It's just another condition, another thing that somebody else is going to add as a means through which you can know that you have eternal life by what you are or what you've done rather than what Christ has accomplished for His people. Well, it can't be that simple. That is the simple revelation of God of Himself. That is the grace of God to us. 
People say, well, God has rejected his people. In Romans 11, Paul, Paul deals with that. He asks, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham in blood, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Don't forget this. He told the church of Philippi a little bit more about that. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, loved eternally. That's what that means. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. You remember? But what is God's reply to Elijah? I have kept for myself, listen to this, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. See too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by Grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Those whom God had foreknew obtained it. Why? Because God gave it to them. God snatched them into Himself. God gave them to Christ. But the rest were hardened as it had written. God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Beloved, you you want to know how this looks? Go to Isaiah 6 and then go to John 12. You see this. Jesus says this is fulfilled today in your hearing. Though they know that I am the one, the Christ, because I have raised Lazarus and his rotting corpse from the grave. They refuse. Why? Because God has hardened their hearts and blinded their eyes and deafened their ears and dumbed down their minds so that they could not see. But even if he had not, they would not. See, it's not about how we see or when we see or if we see or why we see. It's the fact that God makes us see. That shows we're His. Let their table, as David said, become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. I mean, think about what I just said. How many people in the world today, even in the context of understanding sovereignty and grace, get offended by that? David prophesied that by the Lord. People will not like that table. When people set that table, people are like, I'm not eating that. That's not the God I know. That's not the Bible I read. You know why? Because people read the Scripture in precepts. Pretexts. Not precepts. They do. Pretexts. It's always about this verse and that verse and the other verse and all these other different verses. But beloved, I can get a recipe book and I can just blindly go through and with a yellow marker, turn the pages and just mark, and I guarantee you that I can get enough ingredients to create something in that highlight. You can do the same thing with any. You can do the same thing with any story. You can take Moby Dick and you can turn it into a, an adventure for children. You can pull out lines from any movie. You can change the narrator on a trailer, and I've seen people do this on a movie and take a horror flick and make it a comedy. You can make anything say what it needs to say, but the scripture, if understood and read in its fullness, 
book after book after book, over and over and over again, you will get it. Let the table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, Paul says, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation comes to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. By grace. By grace, we are one with Christ. By grace, we are redeemed forever. By grace, we have been caused to see and to hear the call that works through the Word of God, to know the voice of our shepherd and to know the truth. And beloved, now we are to come together and to make disciples. Who are we to make disciples of? Anyone willing to remain with us. Think about that for a second. All nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And that was given to the apostles. I even said that last week. But yet the instruction now is to teach, and the elders are to teach the church to do the work of the ministry, which includes instruction in the right manner, in the right relationship. We encourage one another in the Scripture. We are to remind one another about what we've learned and what we are continuing to learn. We are to edify one another with the truth and sometimes admonish one another, which has a negative connotation, which comes with a warning. You know what? You better watch out. Don't don't think that way. Don't act like that way. Because of the Lord, do this, you know. But we're all in the same bag and we're recipients of grace. We're all in Christ together and none of us are without sin. None of us are able to to condemn another. And beloved, if someone is willing to continue to talk with you and to have conversation about the Scripture, no matter what quirky mess they may have in their understanding of the Gospel, they may not even be regenerate yet, but if they want to learn the Scripture, take the time. Because that is the composition of the church, the wheat and the chaff. And God is in the business of sorting them out at the day of judgment. Correction and teaching, patient endurance, even in evil things with evil people, patient endurance and teaching, with teaching, is God's remedy for correction to the praise of His glorious grace. Because that's the ultimate end of it all, isn't it? It's why we do what we do. It's why we learn what we learn. It's why we are what we are. It's to praise God for His grace which reveals Himself perfectly to us. To the praise of His glorious grace. Well, beloved, I'm like, if you're like me, there, there are little things in life could happen and thoughts could in, just, you know, and I don't want to praise anymore. I feel like the world's coming to an end. And Lord, help me, you know, the way I used to be. In my younger days, these types of things would just encompass me completely and destroy my very being. But beloved, God is gracious to us. He's merciful to us. We are able to stand and endure and know that it's not in our strength. It's not in our resolve. It's not in our restitution. It's all in God's mercy and power. And we have been born again. The Scripture teaches us that the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the Lord teaches us in His Word that even the boy Jesus grew in understanding and wisdom and stature. 
So just be patient. The Lord will grow you. If the God-man himself had to learn and grow, he never sinned. He could not sin. But if the Lord Jesus himself had to learn and grow, then so do we. Let us be patient with one another. And most of all, let us be patient with the promises of God and not take things into our own hands to try to perform in a way that would resolve in our redemption, knowing that it is only by grace and only because of the love of God. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the truth of the cross of Christ. Lord, I pray for so many who doubt so much because of the things in life, marriage issues and health issues and money issues and children issues and family issues. Father, there, uh, we could have a list of billions of issues and problems and things that just tie us up. And Father, then we see the world around us and politics and disease and culture and medicine and everything else. And then we see all the fighting. Then we see people hating each other and we see bigotry and racism and crime. And uh, Lord, we just think, oh, where is the, where's the peace? Well, the peace is not of this world, Lord. Remind us of that over and over again, that your peace is not like the world knows. And it comes only from your mercy and your grace. And that we are at one with you because we are at one with Christ and His life has been given to us and our credit. His obedience has been given to us to our credit. His death has been credited to our guilt. And Father, His resurrection had been promised to our hope. So if we can't do anything on the Lord's day, but learn that over and over again that we might encourage ourselves and one another throughout the week in that And that, Lord, our love and our good works unto you would be a a fragrant sacrifice of praise to your grace, to your glory, to your name. And, Father, I thank you for saving us, and I thank you for keeping us, and I thank you for your patience for us, Lord, for without which we we would all need to shudder in absolute horror. And I thank you, Lord, that you did not bring the gospel in fear, But Lord, you you brought the gospel in peace. And that even though our hearts fear, and even though our hearts condemn us at times, Lord, you are greater than our hearts, as John would tell us. For you are love, and all that you are is love. And your love is manifest and seen and shown to us through the death of Jesus Christ for us. And then you continue to work and do works of grace for you, for your people, for your name so that we might praise You for it. Lord, help us to embrace one another, the hurting, those who seem to have it all together. Help us to embrace one another first and foremost in prayer, and Lord, then in service. That we might be instruments of grace to each other. And as we take the Lord's table today, as we take the reminder of Jesus Christ and what He's done in His death, Lord, help us to be very mindful that we are instruments of grace, that we are recipients of grace. And Father, that we have received mercy in a time of need. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's prepare our hearts for the table.